0: Welcome to the Rihanna for President episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. I feel like with the title of this show, I've already given away one of the punchlines in the show, which is we're going to start by talking about the leadership vacuum at the World Bank. David Malpass has stepped down. We're going to talk about Who could possibly replace him? And then we're going to talk about something completely different, which is the derailment in Ohio. But then we're going to talk about ads and the value of advertising and the value of publicity. And we're somehow going to talk about Rihanna and the Super Bowl. And we are going to bring it full circle and come to the genius idea that Rihanna should be the next um, president of the World Bank, which would be awesome, I think. It's all coming up. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film,
0: If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
3: global money news that Felix and his his ilk really care about, and that is who will run the World Bank.
0: I, I've kind of lost track of how many World Bank successions we've had here on Slate Money over the years, but they're always fun. They're always fun to handicap. It's never who you think it's going to be. Although David Malpass was, was always kind of the front runner, I guess. In any case, Donald Trump did end up Nominating David Malpass. He did wind up getting voted in by all of the countries of the world, even though no, no one particularly liked him. But it was understood that, you know, the American nominee always gets it. And so he got it. And then this week, the big news is he resigned. And the first weird thing is why did he resign? You know, was he quietly pushed out by the Biden administration? Which clearly never was much of a fan of his. Or was it actually his decision? I guess, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. The fact is, there's a really big, important job that has now opened up. And in theory, it's open to anyone on the planet. But if you look at history, it's only open to Americans.
3: right? And I guess we should say why the White House didn't like David Malpass. It wasn't just because he was a Trump appointee it was because he had not he had said he didn't believe in climate change basically
0: there was this absolute train wreck of an interview last september where the interviewer and i'm trying to remember who it was i can't remember where the where the interviewer like threw up this incredible softball about like you know so something something you know c- can we at least just agree on the basics like there is anthropogenic climate change and it's bad and we need to do what we can to stop it and he basically refused to admit that there was any kind of human-caused global warming at all and the entire world went up in arms al gore called for his you know immediate resignation um and then somehow he clung on and survived that and he walked the comments back just enough to cling on to his position Um, Part of the problem was that it was kind of understood that if the U.S. fired him, which they do have the ability to do, then maybe the rest of the world wouldn't necessarily just go along with whoever the U.S. nominee was for the replacement, because there is a vote, and the rest of the world does need to vote. And if they vote for someone else rather than the U.S. nominee, then that other person gets it. That's never happened, but theoretically that could happen. Now that he's resigned, it does seem much clearer that it's up to Treasury and the White House to nominate a successor. And I would be absolutely astonished if that person, whoever it is, doesn't wind up getting the job. So really, yeah, whoever Joe Biden and Janet Yellen think, you know, want, want to be the next World Bank president will be the next World Bank president.
1: So how much how much pressure do you think they are under to nominate somebody who's been very vocal about climate change specifically and, and what the World Bank's role is in fixing it?
0: I think that would be like, they would love to do that, right? They would love to be able to signal that this is the big existential issue of our time and that this is the thing that the World Bank should really be concentrating on above everything else, right? So when Obama nominated Jim Yong Kim to be the World Bank president, that was, he was the co-founder of Partners in Health, and that was an indication of, you know, we are going to move away from having financiers and bankers running the World Bank to having someone who really cares about health and poverty and, you know, well-being instead. And I think that maybe this is the opportunity for the Biden administration to say, the number one priority is climate change, and we want a real, someone who's really going to push the green agenda in this position. And if they did do that, then I think the rest of the world would happily go along with that nomination. Um, so then the question arises, you know, if you want to do that, who do you nominate? And one of the problems is that the obvious candidates would be, you know, old white men. It would be John Kerry. It would be Al Gore. You know, who are the, you know, younger American women of color who would— Incredibly, be leaders on that front. It's an interesting question.
1: Yeah, I think it it probably just depends on whether they make it a priority to recruit from NGO land versus uh, the private sector. And looking at you know, per what you just said, um, because the NGO leaders are, I, I think, far more diverse than the people that they would pluck out of the private sector. No,
0: so so Raj Shah is a name that comes up quite a lot, right? And he runs the Rockefellers Foundation. Um, he would definitely be on any shortlist, I think. But by the same token, again, there is a lot of talk about Biden really wanting to nominate a woman. The World Bank has never been run by a woman, and that would be pretty awesome too.
3: What is is the World Bank going to do about climate change, really?
0: So the World Bank mobilizes hundreds of billions of dollars to to the countries which are ultimately going to either just massively increase their carbon emissions as they industrialize or aren't. You Mm know, like a lot of the future trajectory of carbon emissions is a function of big, big questions like how much is India going to be polluting? How much is China going to be polluting? Well, China's not really, you know... The World Bank has very little control over China. But certainly, Africa as a continent, you know, is the fastest growing continent in the world by far in terms of population. And the per capita emissions are growing. And Mm. how is the World Bank going to square that circle of keeping economic growth, keeping the, you know, poverty rate going down rather than up, while at the same time without having carbon emissions going out of control that is like of all of the institutions in the world probably the world bank is best place to be able to do that whether it can i don't know but like if anyone can it can
3: it's interesting to me too because in the u.s i feel like the administration there was an effort to sort of put a climate lens on policy making like for a while it seemed like the federal reserve was gonna go for it in that direction but then had to walk that back
0: well, they didn't walk it back so much as you know they ran straight into COVID, and then suddenly COVID overwhelmed all mm. of their other considerations. But certainly, until COVID hit, they were leaning in that direction. The Bank of England was really taking a lead in terms of green finance and that kind of thing. So, I think there is a broad international consensus that big, you know, international financial institutions can and should take a lead on this issue, you know, as best they can.
3: I guess what I was driving at is. There's international consensus, and yeah, maybe COVID drove it off track a little, and and this is a sign of getting back to that. But in the U.S. itself, and the U.S., right, it's a big contributor to climate change itself. Making these kinds of moves gets a lot of pushback politically as, you know, woke and stuff. And I think part of the reason the Federal Reserve recently said it it wasn't going to do as much around climate as people had thought was because of that, right?
0: I mean, the, the the good news, if you want to think about it this way, is that the World Bank has zero influence over the United States, right? The World Bank president is not going to start lecturing the US on American climate emissions mm-hmm. or carbon emissions, I should say. Um, so if the Americans put someone in who cares about carbon emissions and is trying to put the rest of the world and specifically the developing world onto a more sustainable trajectory i i don't know how many you know texas oil barons are going to complain about that maybe Mm -hmm. i mean there's always you know a few but the federal reserve is is directly worried about the american economy and intervenes very aggressively in the american economy as we've seen the world bank doesn't so it's less of a conflict there
3: yeah. And it's a, I guess it's a way for the White House to be, I'm sorry to say this word. I don't know what's come over me. It's a way for the White House to be woke about climate <laughs> with little political blowback because people probably don't care as much about the World Bank in the U.S. as like Felix does.
1: Well, I also think you know, climate change in a really longitudinal way has become more widely accepted even on a bipartisan basis. And so there there are Republicans who are trying to roll that back and turn it back into an issue of, of wokeness or lefty overreach, but I, I just don't think that it's actually getting any traction. And when you mm-hmm. when you look at surveys of you know what the sort of baseline Republican thinks, they might think that, you know, we're doing too much to uh, correct climate change that's not business friendly, but the level of denial that it actually exists has gone down over time.
0: I think if you look at the world which is really the constituents we were talking about here the the sort of right-wing climate denialism in america is such an outlier that this is not going to influence the presidency of the world bank right like right-wing climate denialism basically doesn't exist anywhere in the world um beyond america Mm -hmm. and even in america it's those people don't care about who the president of the World Bank is. And yeah, so, you know, we have this global consensus. And that I guess the reason I'm I'm talking about this is because, you know, what then happens if Biden nominates someone like Samantha Power to be the president of the World Bank, right? She's qualified in many ways, and she understands the, you know, issues facing the developing world, but she's not known as any kind of climate warrior.
3: Um, why don't you run through or Elizabeth, whoever, run through the possibilities for who's gonna get the nomination and 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 tell us your bets?
0: It's so I mean this one's really really tough. i I can't really handicap it. you know, I think a lot of the names that would bubble up in the past um, are now just too old. People like Mike Bloomberg and Hillary Clinton, just you know, they've they've aged out of contention at this point. But who's the sort of next generation of people who are coming into contention? Maybe Raj Shah, um, Samantha Power for sure. So Raj Shah, we talked about, he's he's the head of the Rockefeller Foundation. Samantha Power is is a you know long-standing like State Department and academic international relations type. I don't know who do you guys. Who 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 do you guys see as being on the list among the Americans? Among like, if you open it up to non-Americans, then there's a vast bench of like of, of highly qualified people who could do it. I just don't see the I just don't see the Biden administration doing that. We we're, we're moving in the the current geopolitical climate internationally. Just nothing about it says to me that the Americans are going to give up that plum position.
3: Why not Al Gore?
0: Well. He's you the know, only he, one I could think of. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just I mean he's getting on a bit. I mean he's now, not a woman. Also, <laughs> he's not a woman. He's a little bit of a blowhard. You know, like maybe, you know, I'm sure he would jump at the chance. It doesn't feel like a forward thinking, you know it feels like a clunky choice. Mm. But maybe it could be, you know.
3: Elizabeth, you got anyone?
1: I have no idea. I feel like uh, the, the administration is probably going to lean toward finding somebody who comes more out of a policy realm than a finance realm, uh, specifically because of the optics of Malpass.
0: Yeah, it's not going to. I very much doubt it'll be a banker. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure that Jamie Dimon would love it, right? But like, I, I just, there's, I just cannot imagine a world, politically speaking, where. Joe Biden rewards Jamie Dimon with this plum job because, you know, why would he?
3: I have an idea that won't, isn't good, but I'll throw it out there. <laughs> Go on.
1: <laughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> oh, Instead of Just being a chaos monkey inside of Twitter. Yeah. I can make him a chaos monkey you, inside you thought- of
0: Twitter. You thought David Malpass was bad. You just wait until we put Elon in charge.
3: What? I mean, he's into the environment, I think, because of the car thing. People say he likes the environment. It gets him out of the US. It gets him out of twitter maybe somehow it gets him off my plate <laughs> is what i'm saying <laughs>
1: <laughs> we wouldn't have to talk about him anymore if he was
3: yeah, and the thing. Can he'd, can you do it right imagine. he'd do it because his ego is that big he's like sure i can do this no problem and that's that it solves it's kind of like uh what do they call it a win-win triple bottom line something
0: he's african
3: right but but he's 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 ours now
0: Exactly, he he gets a bit like Jim <laughs> Kim, you know. He was Every he was born, he was an American, but he was born in Korea. Now uh, we can have an American who was born in Africa. He's he's but, a global. Yeah, no,
3: no, no, just a joke, <laughs> I guess. Well, if anyone has any idea who's going to be the next World Bank president, email us.
0: <laughs> and I think I think the Americans will nominate someone pretty quickly. I feel like they've been gaming out this scenario for months now, and they probably have a pretty good idea who they want. And it will probably be like no one we've met named and someone out of left field, a bit like it was under, you know, with Obama. Okay. After the ads, we should definitely, definitely talk about the airborne toxic event in Ohio coming up after this break.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Emily Felix
0: There wasn't there was a freight train derailment in Ohio and it caused an airborne toxic event. Um so what does this tell us about the state of American infrastructure and railways in particular?
3: Um I think it tells us a lot about the railways in particular, most of which I think a lot of people already knew because the freight rails were in the headlines last year because of their labor dispute, but they have been cutting costs and cutting costs and cutting staff and cutting staff for years, you know, to boost their profits. And they have been lengthening the trains. There are tr- the trains right now, I think, on average, are like a mile. 1.2 miles long and they're staffed by not that many people. And I should say, we don't know yet exactly what caused this particular derailment and no one died. And, and we don't know the cause, but I I can say that the freight rails and the companies that own them are very focused on profits. They don't have a lot of people staffing the trains. So that's sort of like all happening in the backdrop and it kind of, and, and meanwhile, these trains are Carting the most toxic dangerous stuff that is used in our supply chain like um, in this case it was vinyl chloride which is an industrial chemical used to make plastic that is causes cancer and is very toxic and there was another chemical release that was like used as a weapon in world war one or something and people put this stuff on the trains because to put them on truck to put it on trucks would be even worse even more dangerous right because driving on the highways is even more dangerous.
0: And and this one, they actually, they, they set it on fire deliberately, right?
3: Yes, they were worried um, if they didn't do that, it would be even worse. There'd be an explosion that would be even worse. So yeah, they set on fire deliberately. The neighboring town was evacuated, and then residents were told they could come back. And they came back, they were like, uh, my dog is dying and my eyes are burning and things like that. And uh, so far, I think the EPA has said it's, it's safe, but it doesn't seem like anyone really believes the EPA.
0: Those of us who lived in, in New York City during 9-11 or immediately after 9-11 have long since learned not to trust reflexive government announcements that, oh, you can taste it, you can smell it, it's obviously toxic, but it's perfectly safe. It's fine. It's fine.
1: <laughs> it's, it's the equivalent of a chemical weapons attack in the middle of Ohio. And with with all the problems that chemical weapons would have, which is that they contaminate the environment, and they're difficult to clean up, and you can't really contain them. And you know, I think people intuitively understand that. So when the EPA says, "Oh, it's fine now, you can come back," like n- nobody with more than three brain cells buys it.
0: It seems to me that on on one level, there is no such thing as a perfectly safe transportation system of anything, right? Like the, you can't you can't create a system where nothing ever goes wrong that's statistically impossible so by the same token there does seem to have been a diminution i guess of controls that were in place to try and prevent this kind of thing and it seems possible likely colorable i don't know what what word you'd use that you know that that some kind of form of investment or just having more people working on preventing this kind of thing might have prevented this kind of thing.
3: Yeah. I mean, again, we don't know exactly yet what caused this kind of this thing, but we know that derailments aren't that uncommon. We know that the the rails have been fighting against safety, some safety regulations for years and years and looking to minimize staff. We know that these trains are over a mile long and this train in particular vice has a good story about how it was, it's the 32 N line, but they called it the 32 nasty. And um, apparently according to vice's reporting, the heaviest, um, Cars of the train were in the back. So, I mean, you can just think of it intuitively when you break and all the heavy stuff is behind you, it's not as safe, right? If you got like bowling balls in the back seat, I like to bring up bowling balls from time to time, they'll like <laughs> flying at you. Um, in other industries, when bad stuff happens, safety gets tightened up. Like I think about airplanes. And they don't have a zero record, obviously, but they, they're pretty good on safety because people are really scared of falling out of the sky. And there's a lot of regulations around air, airline safety. But right? I think
1: that's that's true because they're, they're consumer-facing industries. And th- this is really business-to-business. You know, business, so the average mm-hmm. consumer has no concept of how relatively safe or unsafe this is. And it's not a thing that you would walk through the world thinking about or worrying about, as a matter of course.
0: There is a culture of safety in the airline industry. And very specifically, there is a culture of using accidents and near misses as opportunities to learn more about the system as a whole and Mm -hmm. trying to make the system as a whole as safe as it can possibly be. And the aerospace industry is extremely good whenever there's a crash or a near miss of investigating what happened and not pointing fingers and not assigning blame and instead saying like how do we improve the whole system so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again and what i'm seeing in the aftermath of what happened in ohio is a lot of pretty sort of knee-jerk let's start blaming norfolk southern or let's start you know assigning blame and like whose fault is this and who can we blame for this and who can we sue for this and it's in that kind of a system, you know, companies wind up going on the defensive, they wind up not opening up quite so much about what happened and, and what might have gone wrong. And it's harder to have a system where people feel comfortable coming forwards and saying, like, actually, we can make it safer if we do this or we do that. And I, I think that the aerospace industry as an industry is really kind of best practice when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, one of the problems with the 737 MAX debacle was that that culture was getting weaker and weaker within boeing and that Mm -hmm. was one of the big problems there but broadly in the industry it still remains in place and i don't get the feeling that the railroad industry has bought into that kind of culture
3: i can give you an anecdote i was talking to a union guy this week and he was saying in the airline industry there's a hotline where workers can call in anonymously, report safety issues, and the airlines have promised like they're not going to try and figure out who people are or retaliate or whatever. And that effort has kind of been, according to this guy, blocked by the freight rail companies. They won't promise no retaliation. <laughs> so it sounded like to me, from what this fellow was telling me, that there's discouraging of people reporting problems. And the Vice story also is... Th- They've done some reporting that shows something similar where their workers are kind of discouraged from reporting concerns or s- about safety issues. And it's interesting if you go back to, like, the history of the rails in the United States, like, really way back when the companies used to hire workers, say, from China, you know, back in the day, like, when the railways, what are they called? When the tracks were first being laid down, they were, like, paying Chinese workers Barely anything, and they were dying at really high rates. And these companies, I mean, this was obviously a long centuries ago, were like, what ofs, you know? And I feel like culture echoes. Also, I will also note that I was reading some reporting um, where they said Norfolk Southern has said it will donate money to residents of the town, making it sound like they're doing charity. Like, what is that? I mean they did an accident. They're not donating money. They're like paying people for the hardship that they've caused, right?
1: Yeah, and it worked out to like $5 per person, <laughs> which if you, you know, end up with cancer, that's not really very helpful.
0: Yeah, I you know, I I do still think and you made this point earlier, Emily, that rail is by far the the greenest and most efficient and safest way of transporting dangerous shit that like yeah. exists you know and we have to transport dangerous material somehow um it's already in that sort of top position it's the first best solution to that problem and in a weird way i think what's happened is that the railroads ha- have rested on their laurels there right they're like we have no competition you know no one's going to start moving this stuff by truck. You know, you have nuclear waste. It's going to be moved by train. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's like a captive set of buyers. You know, we have a, we have a monopoly on providing these services. Um, and that makes them a little bit sort of complacent. And we probably just need a regulator with teeth. But that's true in many, many parts of the U.S. US economy. Yes. We'll be right back after an ad. Tell us about weird, crappy ads.
3: There's an article over the weekend in the New York Times with the question mark headline: "Why are you seeing so many bad digital ads now?" Which, anecdotally, I I agree. I am seeing a lot of bad digital ads now, especially on
1: Twitter, but and also everywhere else. In your view, what what constitutes a bad ad? Because it's mistargeted or it looks like. It looks terrible. It's for some,
3: like, weird product. Like, there's one I was seeing for a while that looked like this, like, you remember in grade school, there'd be, like, this big silk parachute thing, and you'd all sit in a big circle, and you'd, like, lift it up and go underneath it? Yep. Okay, good. Thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs> this product was, like, that smaller, and you. the idea was you put all your makeup in it, and then you, like, tighten I've it. I've seen this
1: ad. Yeah.
3: It's so dumb. It's just <laughs> junky crap. You know what I mean? It's like infomercials have infiltrated all of it, all of the ad space in the digital sphere in in more places than you would typically see them. Like sometimes you go to junky sites and see them, but now it's everywhere. It's Twitter, it's Facebook, it's I don't know, not Axios. Instagram. Instagram.
1: Yeah, and this is just a this is a function of the surveillance capitalism model where if you have any data about the user at all, it makes it possible for advertisers to very cheaply target you
0: I I feel like it's the opposite of that actually Elizabeth the what we're seeing is that the prices of advertising you know in the world of a duopoly where basically all ads are sold by either Google or Facebook are going up and it's 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 now become very expensive to target people
1: I'm not seeing that at all And, and we do some targeting in my one of my other day jobs in fact we see it getting cheaper
0: so so the co- so the CPMs are coming down?
1: Yeah, for for that kind of marketing. And I I do think it's a very different market from for instance, you know, a full page glossy ad in a magazine. Like these are these are wildly different economies. And it's still relatively cheap to do very targeted advertising online cheaply. So
0: just just to be clear, when you say relatively relatively <laughs> So just to be clear, when you say relatively cheap, you mean relative to what?
1: Well, a few cents on the dollar relative to what, what we would consider normal display advertising, where a brand goes in and says, I want these spots on the page. And here's some custom creative uh, for your site. And by creative, I mean, you know, whatever the ad looks like, whether it's video or static or anything like that. The stuff that you're seeing that is talking about is, is completely algorithmically driven. And uh, you buy those things through ad networks. Where you're buying at scale, but you're also targeting specific demographics, and because you're not really controlling, you know, where the ads end up, or to some extent who they're ending up in front of, you're, you know, you're paying less for them, and, and they tend to be less effective. Uh, users don't recall them as much. The funny thing is, they recall them more if you mistarget target an ad. This is why Emily mm. remembers the, the makeup bag ad because she's thinking like, why, why am I getting this? So there there's also some irony to it. The worse the targeting is, the more likely you're you are to have ad recall for those things.
0: But you're saying that in terms of CPMs, like the the the, the cost of buying an ad, that programmatic is a small fraction of if I just buy it directly? Yes. Interesting.
1: Way cheaper to do programmatic in, in almost every case. There are probably some exceptions when you get to luxury goods and things like that, but for these, especially for these infomercial type products that Emily's talking about. Mm. So
3: um, the Times points to a few reasons. One is that uh, marketing budgets are smaller this year, so like the big established advertisers have pulled back, and prices have softened, as Elizabeth is saying. And you know where the the good guys have pulled back, the crummy ads are like flooding in. Um, is one reason. Also, I mean, with Twitter, sort of a specific case where I think advertisers got scared off by future World Bank president Elon Musk. And also the Times piece mentions something we've talked about a, a bit, which is that it's harder now for for targeting to happen because of the changes Apple's made to uh, its privacy controls. So it's like a-, a combo of reasons, but it's making the user experience online really bad.
0: So, my question is where where are the brand advertisers advertising? If you think of advertising as basically being two different things. You have like the glossy brand ads that make you want to think lovely things about the brand um what 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 they like like to call top of the funnel stuff versus the sort of crappy junk mail that just makes you want to click and buy something. On the other end, there's always been both in in the ad world. You know, before the internet, you know, you'd have glossy ads in Vogue magazine, and you'd have junk mail literally coming through your mailbox. Um, on the internet, they kind of coexist uneasily alongside each other. But if this is true that um, the the crappy junk maily kind of ads are taking over more and more of the internet. Where are the brand advertisers? Because they're not going back to Vogue. They're not, like, suddenly moving all of their ad budgets back to glossy magazines. Where are they?
1: I mean, I think the big brands didn't fully pull out of Vogue. You know, they, they might have cut budgets a little bit, but you're still seeing ads in the, the usual places that you would. I think the difference is for this, this sort of lower-end targeted advertising, people use that really need direct conversions they need to do to be able to demonstrate internally that you go off and buy something based on this ad
0: right but 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 elizabeth what i'm saying is what's changed you know like that's always been the case why why is it feeling worse now
1: well i think you know the biggest thing is just that programmatic is so much easier not just for you know ad buyers but also for publishers You know, if you've ever worked on the ad side of a media company, you know how much care and feeding goes into managing a single advertiser on an account. And I've seen a lot of publishers just move into programmatic more just because, you know, you don't have to chase people down for money. You don't have 90 days between serving an ad and getting paid. You know, there's somebody with a corporate credit card on the other side that's just, you know, everything's automated and that's huge. That's that's especially when you talk. You're thinking about smaller smaller publishers and companies that just are not going to have the same ad sales and account management infrastructure. I think that's part of what's driving programmatic adoption because it's easier to scale.
0: So if that's right, if what you're saying is right, and the amount of programmatic ad buying is going up, and the and part of the reason for what Emily's talking about is just that we have more programmatic in general, then. I go back to my original question, which is, like, if there's more programmatic, that means there's less of the carefully bought and placed and art-directed brand advertising. And if there's less of that online, then where is it moving? Or is it, like, is it all just, maybe it's all just moving to... Newsletters, podcasts—I have no idea.
1: I, I think some of it is they're they're sort of redefining what they consider big brands, or redefining what they consider brand awareness. Yeah. So, for example, you know, if you have a, a a brand that has a really just kind of granularly branded social media presence on Twitter or TikTok or something, and it seems to be doing something a little bit different than what the the big national mainstream advertising looks like. I think the way that they think about it is this is just, you know, you're fragmenting your brand identity a little bit in order to capture, you know, different audiences. I'm not sure that it's the case that people are really pulling back on marketing budgets altogether. They're just allocating them differently into different media.
0: Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, that's that's my question. If they're allocating them different differently and they're moving it away from the web, where are they allocating it to what's if that if the web is the loser and the web in the consumer web experience is the loser what's the gainer
3: it's too broad to say the web is the loser it's like this specific kind of web advertising maybe is the loser but companies have gotten more sophisticated just like elizabeth said in how they market themselves both online and in the real world and it's not always going to be in an ad like you yourself felix have talked about you know companies have editor-in-chiefs Now companies put out their own newsletters. Now their own podcasts. Now they do their own kind of stealth content marketing that you, a lot of people aren't even aware of, like in finance, you know, companies are spending marketing dollars on things like uh, personal finance sites that you think are non-biased where they're, you know, spending money to get themselves ranked higher as like a great fintech or a bank or something, you know, and not even aware of that stuff. Like there's all kinds of ways you can deploy your online marketing budget that isn't just ads that are can be effective. And then at the high end, you know, we always have the Super Bowl.
0: There will always be the Super Bowl. <laughs> Eventually, there will be like, you know, it's amazing how Super Bowl ad spots only ever go up in price, even as the number of people watching the Super Bowl doesn't go up at all. Because it is the only mass event that a brand can use to introduce itself to a hundred million people like there's no other way you can do it
1: the only event i can think of where the ads are part of the entertainment yeah like i know people who my seven-year-old wanted to watch just for the ads yeah does not care about football he just wanted to see the ads did he have an ad did he like
0: the ads were the ads good this year
1: uh he gave it a mixed review he asked him to give rank each ad like one to five which you got bored with very quickly, but it was fun for, you know, five minutes. So.
3: I liked Ben Affleck working at the Dunkin' Donuts myself. I don't yes. think he should have. that. For those who didn't watch, Ben Affleck worked the, the drive through window at the Dunkin' Donuts, and it's funny. And then J-Lo comes up, and she's like, is this what you do all day? And then he leaves, which many said was not good. You should stay at your work. But... <laughs>
0: yeah stay stay at your work duncan employees don't run off with j-lo if j-lo pulls up in a drive through and offers offers you you know the opportunity to drive off with her into the sunset say no and keep on serving that coffee Wait, here's
3: a question and for felix and elizabeth since you guys are consumers of online content if the ads are terrible does that turn you off from the content itself like how much are you willing to put up with like, I can't read a story where there's, like, one of those images of, like, someone popping a pimple, for example. Like, I will just stop. That's it. I'm, I'm out. Like, I don't want to see anything about earwax. You know what I mean? Like, I have a limit.
0: There are certain websites which I just reflexively click on that reader view in Safari because it, they're unreadable Smart. without Smart. it. You know, The Hill or The Daily Mail or something like that. It's just like the Daily News. You just cannot read those pages. They're so encrusted with ads. And so I'll just try and click out there was a point where um bloomberg stories became just completely unreadable because of auto playing videos everywhere and i'm like okay i'm going to stop trying even trying to read this story because i cannot stop it making sounds at me and it was ridiculous but yeah so it's a, a bad ad experience really does degrade the whole website significantly
1: yeah, it's worse, though, to have a bad user experience where the page is loaded with ads and you can't read what you're trying to read. Or, or it's Felix mentions, you know, you autoplay or something, which is terrible if you're sitting, and maybe this is less of an issue now, but if you were sitting in open plan office pre-COVID and you have something that suddenly starts screaming at everyone around you. Um, and that that kind of thing, I, I think, is qualitatively different than, you know, do these ads suck generally and would that turn you (laughs) off from the content i don't think the ad sucking really turns me off but if if the the way the page is designed and the ad placements make it impossible for me to get to what i want to then yeah i won't i I will consciously make an effort to avoid
0: but they're related right like in general the places with lots of annoying pop-up ad type things are also the places with the crappiest ads.
1: Sometimes I I do think, but there, there was, uh, when, when I have worked on the the ad side of digital or publishing side, one thing, and I I think publishers are better about this now. If you had a really high end luxury advertiser, they would come in and ask for some insane ad spot that did something super weird and was very intrusive and took up like half the page. And so when you saw those spots, it would be like Jaguar. It wouldn't be like, you know, a, a weird programmatic brand or or, you know the kind of thing emily was talking about the parachute thing you put your makeup in
0: my 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 pet peeve is i have to say the house ads more than any advertiser like you, you can have the worst makeup bag in the world and it's annoying but the thing that annoys me more than anything else like the number one most annoying thing about the internet is every single website i go to i need to click away some modal asking me to subscribe to their newsletter before I can read whatever I want to read. There's, and yeah. that is always a house ad. That is never a Jaguar ad or a Chanel ad. It's always some, you know, please, you know, give us your personally identifiable information for some reason thing.
3: And then it says, no, I don't like fun, and you have to click that, and it's like,
0: <laughs> "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> jerks. <laughs> jerks. Okay, let's have a numbers round. I'm going to begin because I think you guys can both beat me, but I was fascinated by this one. $439,000. That is the super discount we buy in massive bulk and we paid already paid for all of your R&D per unit cost that the US government pays for each of the Sidewinder missiles that we are now flying up into the air and firing at various unidentified flying objects. And I'm like, you know, whenever you see these headlines about, and we've shot another thing out of the sky, and this was in Canada, and this was somewhere else, you you kind of wonder, like, I intuitively just think, oh, you're firing a bullet, or maybe you're firing, like, a missile, but how much can a missile cost? The the answer is $439,000. And if you're the, you know... Korean Air Force—they're well over a million. They're like over two million.
3: And that's just the missile that comes out of the of the plane, which itself costs like half a billion or something.
0: Exactly. That's just a single a single use missile, which will then destroy itself, wow. and you can never use it again.
3: And they don't even know what they're shooting right now. I mean, this is according to the episode of the Daily that I Correct. listened to, where they were like, the first one was a balloon, but the, <laughs> the second one and the third one, nobody knows what it was. It could have been some like garbage, basically, or a UFO, I guess. But no one thinks Space that junk. Really.
0: It was, it was a flying Elon. <laughs> if in Tesla. doubt, it was probably <laughs> Elon. Um, Elizabeth, what's your number?
1: Uh, my number is 13%. And it's the increase in reporting of stomach bugs on an app produced by Summit Health, which was, this was in a fortune piece about, uh, it's apparently norovirus season, and it's much higher than usual. And some people are attributing this to a raw oyster outbreak that can be traced to Texas. Um, but this would mostly affect. Who the, the hell Southeast eats raw
0: oysters from Texas?
1: My entire family. <laughs> I, I consider if you're in the myself. Southeast, a, that's kind of where they come from. That's a uh, you're eating a lover golf of oysters, raw oysters. That, uh, but,
0: Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, Gulf oysters have their place, and that place is fried in a po' boy. <laughs> it is not raw. Come on, people. Um, Emily, what's your number?
3: My number is thirty-eight point five million. That is the number of streams. Of Rihanna music that was played the day after the Super Bowl, according to Luminate, which tracks all the big platforms of streaming. And that is compared to 12.4 million, or more than three times what it was the day before the Super Bowl, which explains why someone would perform at the Super Bowl, I think, a little bit for free, Um, is because it's like an. Oh,
0: she didn't get paid?
3: You don't get paid for performing at the Super Bowl. Yeah, you do it because it's like, it's basically like you get a commercial for yourself right? Like, you don't have to pay the crazy rates. And um, and not only was it, uh, she saw the payoff in the streams, but, you know, Rihanna has her makeup brand, Fenty, and she had all this ready to go, like Super Bowl branded makeup. And some of it, I'm not, maybe all of it got sold out. So not only is she selling, you know, marketing for her music, but also for her makeup brands. And so it all kind of comes together.
0: In, in terms of celebrity musicians with fashion lines, I feel like the implosion of Kanye has really opened up a lot of white space for Rihanna to just take over the entire world.
3: that's right. That's good analysis.
0: Also, did we not see this week that um, Pharrell is taking over as the head menswear designer at Louis Vuitton?
3: What do you think of that?
0: I, I don't know. It's weird, right? I don't think that Pharrell is a designer. I don't think that Kanye is a designer. I don't think that Rihanna is a designer. I don't quite understand... This whole move where you take musicians and you pretend that they're designers—great marketing. It seems to work financially. It's marketing, yeah. It's you pure just said marketing.
3: Louis Vuitton on Slate Money, and they didn't pay us for that.
0: You know, <laughs> maybe maybe the new head of the World Bank should be a multi-platinum artist who can, you know, just lead the world through sheer force of celebrity. I mean, put Rihanna who's, in charge who's of the, the, the world new Bank? Bono. Put, put Rihanna, there you go. Put Rihanna in charge of the World Bank. I, would, I think the world could get behind that one. Everyone would like that one. I like the idea. She's not a US citizen, but we can make an, you know, we can just say it's Rihanna. She's, she's global, man. Okay, I think that's it for Slate Money this week. We're going to have a Slate Plus where we ask all of you lovely Slate Plus folks what I should be doing to market my book. Um, and especially the audiobook. book <laughs> um, because, you know, crowdsource this stuff. It's a good idea. Um, otherwise, thanks for listening to Slate Money. Thanks to Anna Phillips for producing. Thanks for emailing us on com. and we'll be back next week with more Slate Money.